again, everybody. This is Greg Bryant, host of Jazz After Hours on member-supported WBGO. And I'm Nate Chinen, editorial director at WBGO. Welcome back to Jazz United. We've got a great show today in tribute and memory, a celebration of the sound and spirit of drummer Paul Motion. That's right. Paul Motion died almost exactly a decade ago on November 22nd, 2011. He was 80. Um, but he was playing, he was playing like a man easily 20 or 30 years younger than that. Um, so his death was a real shock. Um, he was a drummer, of course, and a, a really incredible composer and band leader, and someone who brought a distinctive touch to any musical setting. So his, his loss really left an incalculable void. Um, it was felt immediately, um, with with a certain incredulity for a while um and uh and you know he really was irreplaceable um but you know he also left us with this ineffable thing the spirit of exploration um this approach to rhythm and pulse and texture um elements that we can still hear in the music and in some way they've even uh they've even deepened since his passing and so uh, in that sense, and in that sense alone, I feel it can sometimes seem as if he never left. Right on time, Nate, right on time. He would have been 90 years old this year. Um, and it's very important that we dedicate this episode to his sound and spirit. Um, you and I both have had relationships with his music. Um, we're going to talk about some key moments that uh, we remember you know, on record. Um, live in your case, numerous times. Um, and there's a new documentary film out that we want to mention, Motion in Motion, which is available digitally, but it will be available here soon on a Blu-ray DVD. And it provides a very unique insight on uh, Paul's musicianship and just him as a person. Uh, we'll talk about that a bit later. And we'll also connect with two musicians who uh, share in Paul's uh, recorded canon and onstage uh, family pianist Marilyn Crispell, and guitarist Jakob Bro. This is going to be a good time. We have been hearing the top of a composition titled Flight of the Blue Jay from the Marilyn Crispell Trio album Storyteller on, on the ECM label. Um, and... Uh, I had a really lovely conversation with Marilyn. So, so look forward to that in this episode, but, but first, Greg, yes, sir. you are sitting in front of a microphone right now mm -hmm. wearing Paul Motion's hat. True. We got to start with that. <laughs> we, you know, we can't bury the lead here. So, oh, so man. we have the spirit of the man, uh, very close, um, could not be closer. That's right. T tell us about that. I know this, this is a, a, the result of a, a mutual friendship. It is. Um, photographer and friend John Rogers uh, was very close to Paul Motion, uh, particularly the last few years. Uh, he kind of served as uh, not only his photographer, um, but his uh, New York road manager. Yeah. Uh, I'll say it that way. Um, but when Paul passed away, um, even during Paul's life, Paul would just give John Rogers these articles um, you know, glasses, you know, shirts, uh, hats even. And after Paul had passed away, uh, I connected with John 
and he's like, hey, man, uh, flat out, this looks better on you than it does on me. This belonged to Paul and I want you to have it. And I was beyond touched. Mm-hmm. But, um, man, the, the, the spirit of, of motion is here. And uh, I'm glad I got to tell that story. I brought that that hat to the tribute we saw, too, as well. It was yeah. it was on my person. Yeah, it's, it, it had to be, you know, you, you got to you've got to sort of bask in the aura when you can. Right. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. We, we may get back to this because uh, I, I had a, a lovely exchange with Marilyn where she talked about how much Paul Motion loved to go shopping. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so all yeah. those articles of yeah. uh, you know eyewear and he- headwear and uh, you know and bags and jackets mm-hmm. and scarves, yeah, you know, they didn't come from nowhere. They they were they were curated by the man himself. Yeah, it, it, indeed. Um, <laughs> but let's go back. Right. Um, mm-hmm. There may be some listeners to our podcast who aren't that familiar with Paul Motion, and and so I, I want to provide a little bit of a of you know backstory without without boring those who know him well um yeah. uh, because this was uh, uh in some ways he was a ubiquitous figure especially on the scene in new york um but you know he preserved this kind of air of mystery throughout his entire musical career you know he, like he was he was somebody who you 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 couldn't quite nail down even if you knew him for you know, decades and, and knew his music. So, um, Greg, you know, rather than talk about his biography, I want to ask you how you became aware of this musician. Um, mm. When did Paul Motion enter your life? Very clearly, I remember uh, two records, both of them by the Bill Evans trio, uh, Sunday at the Village Vanguard from 1961, um, but more directly, Portraits in Jazz, uh, also by the Bill Evans Trio, their first album together. Uh, and I'm speaking of the unit that included Paul, uh, Scott LaFaro as the bassist and Paul Motion as the drummer. Um, before then, um, my concept of uh, motion, pardon the pun, was uh, forward-leaning swing, a la, say, Art Blakey. Um, Art Blakey is a drummer, if you know his sound. Um He's earthy. He's tethered. Um, you know where to clap your hands based on Art Blakey's ride cymbal uh, and his snare drum. Um, but when you think about Paul Motion and what I heard uh, Paul Motion in the Bill Evans trio do was to become untethered. Um, he was still folky. He was still uh, playing music from the soil. But he had this way of breaking up the time and allowing the rhythmic counting to be divided by all of the members of the band Mm -hmm. so that Paul could, almost like an impressionist painter, um, concentrate on the detail of his strokes. He's not necessarily outlining the tune all the time, but when you step back a little bit and you hear him as a catalyst to the other members of any band that he's in, you recognize right away what a force Paul is and what freedom Paul provides um, at the same time giving you that forward motion, that propulsion Mm -hmm. uh, that the best drummers uh, are responsible for. Yeah, and and that interactivity you're talking about, you know, so many people refer to that Bill Evans trio as groundbreaking in its sort of equilateralism 
mm-hmm. you know, this idea that um, Scott LaFaro and Paul Motion are contributing to the conversation really on an equal plane as Bill Evans. Um, so much of that has to do with Paul, you know, um, and and how he articulates time and how he responds to what's happening. Um, you know, and, and there's a, especially the Sunday at the Vanguard album, you know, there's a, there's a kind of tranquility to that album. Um, but make no mistake, like every measure of music on that, on that recording is like humming with activity, you yeah. know? Yeah, uh, and, and that's, that's really one of the, the beautiful things about Paul's musicianship. Um, it was always in a, a sort of super active proposition, no matter how placid the impression might have been just so much going on. Yeah. That's a great album. Uh, that's a great group. Um, and even going forward a little bit, um, many people may feel just by listening to Paul in that Bill Evans, uh, trio context that, Oh man, he never really hits hard. He can never really, you know, bring the intensity up above a certain, uh, dynamic level. But, uh, you're dead wrong because just a few years later, um, in his brief contributions to the Charles Lloyd band, he followed Jack Dejanet in that band. And then later on, uh, with Keith Jarrett's American uh, quartet with Dewey Redmond and Charlie Hayden, um, you really hear the lineage of a lot of drumming that's happening to this day. I think every drummer that, um, takes that impressionist path or more pedagogically correct, straight eighth drumming. All that style is owed, mm-hmm. I would say, to two drummers. One, Vernel Fournier with the Ahmad Jamal Trio, and two, Paul Motion. Again, untethered. He's liberating everybody that's around him on the band stand. Paul was born on March 25th, 1931, in Philadelphia, actually. As a very small child, you know, basically as a baby, he lived with his parents above a grocery store that his, that his uncle ran. And this was an Armenian family, um, an Armenian immigrant family, actually. Paul's mother uh, was a survivor of the Armenian genocide. So Paul grew up surrounded by this kind of first-generation Armenian culture. And his name, you know, pronounced correctly, is Paul Motian. Right. And when he was first on the scene, he was going by that. And I think when people started mispronouncing it as motion, he was like, hey, man, that's pretty hip. Yeah. You know, I'm a drummer. That's that's what I'm about. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but uh, just that sound of um, of Armenian music and the, the modes that are that are employed in that music. Um, and then the the idea of folk dance. Right. Um the communal element, the non-metrical rhythmic element, you know, uh, of a bunch of people sort of singing and dancing together. That all lives in his compositions. I think it's it's very clear uh, throughout his entire musical output that, that there's this other element that is very um, human and very ancient, you know? And at the same time, because it's Paul, it's like, supremely hip and modern uh, yes it is you know so so it's just that there's just this beautiful uh way that he allows and encourages um 
this history to flow through his his pen and his you know and his playing mm -hmm. it's kind of like the step after ornette coleman and it's in its family because you know when i think of ornette and when i think of paul the improvisation is just as valuable as the melody and sometimes mm -hmm. uh the line is blurred as to where the written part stops and the improvisation begins it's almost one continuous flow and a, a continuous experience. I had the really the great privilege as many as many, you know, New York jazz fans did of seeing a lot of Paul Motion from the, you know, the very early 2000s, uh, really the beginning of the, the turn of the century, right up until his passing. Um, and part of that was because he made a decision, a very firm decision, I think right around 2005, yeah. uh, that he, that he wasn't touring anymore. He just, it, it was, it was over. He was going to stay in New York and he was going to play all the time. Yeah. Um, and so in addition to these, these hallowed engagements, you know, there, there was a standing two week engagement right around Labor Day, um, by the incredible trio that that he had with saxophonist Joe Lovano and guitarist Bill Frizzell. And, you know, I mean, I saw I saw that engagement every time it happened. Um, but not only that, right? Because once he made that decision, he was popping up on like younger cats bandstands as a sideman. Yeah. You know, like I yeah. would go to Cornelia Street Cafe and <laughs> see somebody. You know, like like somebody in in his or her twenties, mm -hmm. um, and there's Paul, you know, um, but so many so many evenings um, that were so special, and, and you knew it at the time, um, but you also in a in a very New Yorker kind of way, you also sort of began to take it for granted because it was mm -hmm. because it was so uh, ubiquitous, you know. But when yeah. you when you were talking about those dynamic moments, Greg, um, that's what I think of. I think of like a moment at the Vanguard when the music is so quiet and and luminous and yeah. gorgeous and lyrical, and Paul is you know rustling his brushes, and then all of a sudden you've just got this one like errant but perfect like. Bah! You know, just a yeah. snare drum and a bass drum and a mm -hmm. and a ride cymbal hit with with the with you know the shaft of the drumstick, like the most ungainly sound mm -hmm. that he could have made, and it was it arrived you know off beat. It was like it was just this weird. What was that? Yeah, and yeah. it was this, yeah. it was it was actually a perfect gesture for that moment because it it sort of recentered the molecules in the room mm -hmm. um you know it's like and he was always doing stuff like that always but you know i i was thinking about this i saw paul in just in that room in so many um different contexts you know um i saw him once play with Ethan Iverson and Reed Anderson. Um, ah. So it was basically like 
take Dave King out of the bad plus. <laughs> yeah. And put in call motion. <laughs> yeah. I reviewed that for the times and, and that was fascinating. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was there the first night that, uh, that Paul sat in with Brad Meldow and Larry Grenadier. Ooh. Um, Brad had never played with him before. And, hmm. and, uh, and it was, it was so cool, you know? Um, and, and after the set, I asked Brad about it and, and he, to him, it actually felt not dissimilar to his experience playing with Jimmy Cobb. Okay. Um, you know, just the, just, he called it the big beat, you know, just the way that, you know, you're just pulled or pulled along by that, you know, uh, that force. Mm. Um, uh, I saw Paul with Jason Moran and Chris Potter. That was my um, next question. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, I saw that engagement that, you know, later yielded a, a really, really special album. Um, and then probably, I don't know, a dozen times I saw other bands that, that Paul had put together. It was either the Paul motion band or the electric bebop band. Um, you know, Lorraine Gordon, um, loved Paul, mm-hmm. like truly loved him. And so really more than any other musician, um, during the time that I was going to the club, Paul had carte blanche, you know? She just gave him time on the calendar. And so kind of in a sneaky backdoor way, he was the person who really started bringing in a a younger generation. Um, I mean, a lot of musicians had their first experience at the Vanguard playing in a Paul motion band. Um, And so that's, you know, that's an incredible thing. It's, it's really part of his legacy. Yeah, that's a great way um, to uh, say that we actually got a chance to speak with um, a couple of people in his musical universe. Um, There was an incredible tribute that we saw at the Falcon. Um, And we want to send condolence, of course, to um, uh, Tony Falco's family, uh, of course, in his in his loss. But such a great venue. And that night, Nate, was just on fire. one of the people that knocked us both out was the pianist, Marilyn Crispell. And you got a chance to speak with her. Um, I'm really curious to see what you guys uh, had a chance to talk about. Yeah, it was, it was a really lovely conversation. Um, you know, Paul meant so much to Marilyn and they had a, a obviously a really beautiful musical connection. Um, you know, we should say th- this this incredible evening we saw at the Falcon was organized by the filmmaker, Michael Patrick Kelly. And this took place on, was it July 1st, 2021? Was it was it this past summer? It was, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy. I, I, I'm like, was that was that a year ago? Oh, man. <laughs> was that just several months ago? <laughs> uh, yeah. So it was this past July. It was one of one of the handful of, you know of experiences that we had hearing music inside a room, mm-hmm. you know, during the, the height of the pandemic. Um, and it was, you know, just an extraordinary evening. Yeah, um, it was, you know, uh, Lovano and Frizzell were there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they did their thing with Francisco Mela, um, standing in for Paul, um, yeah. and, and doing a really beautiful job of it. Um, you know, and then and then some of those younger players, right? Like Tony Malaby on saxophone and Steve mm-hmm. Cardenas on guitar. Right. Um, Larry Grenadier was there. Thomas yeah. Morgan on bass. Um, Rebecca Martin on on vocals, um, and then Marilyn on piano, along with 
um, Angelica Sanchez. So, I mean, that's a jazz festival. <laughs> you know, that's like, yeah. And, and they all they were all sort of reforming in these different combinations, mm-hmm. and and you know the whole evening playing Paul's music. Wow, wow, what a privilege! Yeah, it was. We're going to talk about the film uh, in a moment. Um, you know, I think at, right after we hear from Marilyn. But I just want to make this one point. Um, there's so much in this film that kind of puts you. Uh, in the passenger seat right next to Paul, you know, you're just kind of riding along with him and, and sampling what it's like to be Paul motion in New York city, you know? Um, And there's a, there's a great scene where um, Michael and his camera go to meet Paul, um, you know, at his upper West side apartment and they they hail a cab, they get into the cab and they're, they're headed to a recording session. Um, And, uh, and so we, we get to, to hear him talk about, Marilyn Crispell um, and the album they're working on. And then we get footage of the studio. So let's hear a moment of, of that scene and then we'll go right into my conversation with Marilyn. Thank you. Did I tell you about Marilyn Crispell? No. That Mark, Mark Elias is on that. That sounds really good. Mark sounds really good on that. What about you? I'm, I'm me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But it's really nice. I think it's the best work Marilyn's done. And uh, Manfred is really, really happy with it. You've worked with so many remarkable drummers and and percussionists. And um, I wonder what qualities in his playing feel specifically Paul to you. Um, like, what were some of the things about his musicianship that you only associate with him? I, I don't know if I would only associate this with him, mm-hmm. because uh, I've, I've played with other people who have these same qualities. But he, I, I feel like I can do whatever I want to, basically, or I felt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we played together, there was a kind of space and freedom, and he was always listening very hard. So, um, you know, I, I never had to feel that there was something I couldn't do because he didn't want to do it or he wasn't able to do it. Just one time there was a, a piece of mine I wanted to play and he just said, I don't understand this piece. I, I don't understand what to do with it. So he, you know, uh, he, he was also very honest, uh, brutally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He 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 was just real. I felt like I could do what I wanted to. I experienced him in a very comfortable way as being a con- contrarian, really. Mm. So uh, if I would be playing something very lyrical, he might suddenly start playing a march, something. Um, in, in a way that Charles Ives would have different types of things happening at the same time, you know, but they, from a distance perspective, they would fall together, but uh, not from that perspective, you might wonder, why is he doing that? You know, he, he wouldn't just kind of compliment me with what I was doing. He would actually do something very, very different 
and he, and he was always listening so he knew what he was doing yeah, and yeah. that was a very interesting aspect of his pain do you have memories of him from tours like do you remember Ooh, yes. like oh europe God. are there any road stories about paul because i feel like i i had a really good sense of paul in new york because i i was there for that whole stretch where he was no longer touring but there's a you know that's that's just the last mm -hmm. you know 15 years or so um are there any good like paul on the road war stories well i i just remember um he would always get up early and explore the, the places we were playing in. I think we were in Sardinia one time, staying at a place outside of the town. And uh, I came down to breakfast and he had already walked miles all the way into the town and back, you know, to explore it. Um, and Paul loved to shop. He loved to shop. So he and I would often go shopping on tour and he would persuade me to buy stuff that I didn't want and didn't need and would end up giving away when I got home. But he was so convincing. Um, <laughs> he persuaded me to, I think we were in Finland um, in this sunglasses store and he persuaded me to buy some $100 pair of sunglasses and when I got home, I looked at myself in the mirror and they were huge. And they also made me look a little bit like an ax murderer. And <laughs> I just ended up putting them away. And uh, one time, the other time in Switzerland, um, we were walking by this store that had a clear toilet seat full of nails. Thought it was hilarious it cost two hundred dollars or something and i talked him out of buying that because <laughs> he thought it would be fun to freak out his guests and stuff right right but um yeah he, he was a character i guess uh, i'll i'll close with a, a note about that extraordinary evening at the Falcon, which really was like one of the best nights I spent during the whole pandemic, <laughs> you know, because it was so, yeah, it was so life affirming and, you know, such a such a clear uh, illustration of this community. Um, and the fact that it was all everyone gathered for Paul, you know, someone who meant so much. Um, can you speak to the, the the legacy you know a decade now since he's gone i feel like he's still so strong on the scene his compositions never get old i i think for any of us um in a way i compare them to monk in the sense that they're very open and they lend themselves to many different interpretations they they don't close you in and paul himself would would always say yeah, you know, just, you know, it doesn't have to be played like this or like that, free, just a more free feeling. It doesn't have to be in time. So um, they're deceptively simple, um, but they, they are great grounds for improvisation. You know, and I, I love playing them. I still play them um, uh, with another trio I play with and, I think we all still play them. Yeah, yeah. No, it's they—they they are definitely 
they are alive for sure, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and there's no question that um, that that that's a, the definition of a gift that keeps on giving, right? It's mm-hmm. just um, well, Marilyn, thank you so much. This this is really um, it's wonderful to to have to hear you on Paul and to have you as a part of this remembrance that we're doing. Be well, and I hope to see you again, you know, pretty soon. Yeah, all that back to you. <laughs> Man, what a cool conversation uh, with you and Marilyn. And I certainly learned some new things about Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. When he decided to stop touring, Mm -hmm. I thought that it might be because he he didn't really like to travel. But speaking with Marilyn, I'm reminded, you know, no, this this actually was someone who loved to travel. He he I think he loved being out on the road and experiencing, you know, um, whatever, whatever there was to see and, and hear and feel taste, yeah. you know? Uh-huh. Um, and so it was just this kind of, um, I, I don't know, maybe he just made a, a, a decision. Like I've had my fill, you know, like I've, I've yeah. been out there, I've done it. Now it's time to, to just focus, you know? And you think about too, like the time that he stopped, Nate, I mean, yeah. that's when security had, you know, ramped up to 10, yep. Yep. you know, and, and being a, a senior citizen, uh, Hey man, I'm a young person. I don't really dig <laughs> the security hassles, you right. know, that are that are currently happening. And it's definitely even worse when you've got gear and luggage and you know a lot of people to be accountable to. Yeah, that's not the move. But his legacy was of such that, hey man, think about it. There's probably about four or five musicians living now that could stay in New York and make a living between you know, the four clubs, you know, and Paul could, you know, you'd see yeah. him at the Vanguard, you'd see him at Birdland, you see him at the Blue Note, just in different configurations. Yeah. And the house was, was always full. Let's talk about this movie because yeah, we're talking about him um, in musical terms, largely. Um, I think this film does a really incredible job of capturing this artist and explaining why he is so important as a, as a drummer, as a composer. But the thing that you walk away from is just like, he's just a cat with like an incredible personality, you know, he's, I I feel like even setting aside his musical genius, this is like an incredible New York character, you know, and, and Kelly captures that so Mm -hmm. well. Um, Yeah. It's it's really it's really something to the T. He really does capture it. I think about one scene in particular at the Village Vanguard. I know where you're going. I know Mm -hmm. where you're going, man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Lovano and Frisell are together, you know, seated and they're greeting uh, some of the fans that dare to venture into the backstage. (laughs) The inner sanctum. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And they're, you know, politely acknowledging, you know, each member. And then uh, I will say a young misguided perhaps i don't know if he was a music student or just you know a fan on the scene comes back uh spewing some you know i expected much more from you guys than what i got tonight can you imagine i cannot <laughs> i mean I cannot. no I, like this scene has to be has to be seen to be believed yeah people. yeah and, and, and paul ceremoniously he shuts tells him, him where to go oh yeah. man yeah 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 yeah, yeah. This guy, is a family. This is a family show, so we're not gonna we're not gonna repeat oh no. what he says. Oh no! But 
no <laughs> he no. sends the kid packing let's just put it yeah that he way. does yeah he does but oh that's who God. paul was you know yeah that was paul yeah. paul did not suffer fools you you've told me that john rogers has told me that everything i see points to the fact that you know if you were in with paul you were in but yeah. if you were an outsider seeking to um you know poke around and prod you would quickly be dismissed he was so sure of himself hmm. you know and, and i say that when, when you use that phrase sometimes that that means arrogance it's not what i mean he was sure of himself mm-hmm. he was secure in in who he was as a as a human and as a musician and you know you you earlier alluded to some sort of misguided critique about him as being kind of a you know, not so hard hitting or whatever. Mm-hmm. You'd periodically hear folks say that, oh, you know, Paul Motion doesn't really swing. Um, it's all bullshit. Oh, mm-hmm. sorry. I, I just, uh, <laughs> you think Paul himself didn't hear these critiques? You no, know, man. like you think he wasn't aware that people were saying this? It man, didn't matter. He didn't he care. He was like, you know, I mean, he never made a single step that he didn't want to make. That's right. Um, and, and that was, you know, the beauty of um, this period where he settled into New York City and, and that Michael Patrick Kelly captures in this film is that because he was around, it was possible for, you know, overlapping younger generations of talent to to actually sort of digest and mm. process what it was that he was about. These musicians really, really got into the Paul Motion experience and and they hired him for their gigs to be Paul Motion, (laughs) to bring his, you know, unmistakable Paul Motion genius and vibe to the proceedings. And so he really, um, what an amazing thing. He didn't have to uh, do anything he didn't want to do because there was plenty of work for him, not only as a band leader, um, but also as this kind of like um, this like magical elder, you know, he was that he's, he's, he circulated. He was like, that big time. Yeah. He knew how to get from you what he needed from you. And he also knew uh, the potential, perhaps, that you still were yet to reveal um, a, as a leader and as and as a sideman. And that really brings up this next gentleman who uh, I had a chance to speak with, Jakob Bro. Um, A guy who, you know, in the present tense is in the tradition of um, ECM guitarists like Pat Metheny and Bill Frisell and John Abercrombie. You know, he's the next guy right now. Um, A string of critically acclaimed releases. And there are more on the way uh, that we will find out about uh, by virtue of this chat. So. This guy, again, was a member of Paul's uh, Electric Bebop and the Paul Motion uh, bands. Mm-hmm. And he came along at a time when Paul uh, had not finished touring. Um, but even after he had finished, Jakob was already in the family. So he would yeah. come over you know, to New York and be a part of, uh, of these ensembles that Paul led uh, domestically as well. And I will say that the first time I ever heard Jakob and and was even ever made aware of who, of who he is was on a, a Paul Motion band gig at the Vanguard, you know, and it was one of those one of those um, crazy Paul Motion bands where you, you're sitting there and you're like, are there, you know, 
are there three electric guitarists? <laughs> yeah. You know, plus Jerome Harris on, on, you know, on bass guitar. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just like, wow, that's a lot of, that's a lot of amplitude. On a lot that of strings, stage. man. A wall um, of sound. But it's, uh, you know, yeah, that, it was a wall of sound. What a beautiful thing. And, yeah. and, uh, Jakob clearly connected with Paul in, in a deep way. So I, yeah, I want to, I want to hear what you both had to say. If you could talk about his style, what about his style um, is so picturesque? What about his style is so complementary to the way that you guys play guitar? I mean, to me, he's um, he's he's just a complete um, musician in a way. The way he writes music combines it with the way he plays music, and the history of of music is sort of it's it's, it's present in his in his uh, playing some so I don't know it's like um yeah for me he he just he was the he was my role model like it compl- and still is mm-hmm. in in just every sense of the word somehow yeah <laughs> yeah man can you talk about um what musical doors and opportunities that Paul opened for you you know being with a master like that um, especially when you're able to display the skills that you have, um, what are some things maybe that you've benefited from um, by by Paul's tutelage and his opportunity? Hmm. Well, oh, there's so many things. I mean, he always told me, uh, Jakob, stick with me, you'll get straight to the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one time we were in Sao Paulo and we were taking the elevator up, like this fancy hotel, and we were going all the way up to the one of the top floors and he was like, see what I told you? <laughs> Stick with me, we're going straight to the top. Like yeah, he was, but um, but there's so many things. I mean, he, he his way of writing music was, uh, I'm, I mean, highly influenced mm-hmm. by his way of, of, of composing. Uh, I, I was, um, you know, f- playing melodies with Paul, uh, how he would, um, yeah, like a like like how he would make the the music breathe somehow. Like if it was uh, a fast swing tune, or if it's out of time, or whatever. I never thought about uh, tempos when I played with Paul. It was always like the melody was always breathing somehow. Uh, that's something I've really, um, yeah, it's just like re-explored on my own after after yeah we stopped playing together and um you know he i was just like trying to be close to him as much as possible he was telling stories every time he said something it it was uh i learned something if it was about the music or if it was about an experience he had with monk or something he he said about mingus or I mean, he talked about Billy Holiday kissing his hand after they played oh, a ballad. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, wow. Stuff like that is just like invaluable. You can't. It's like, it's really, yeah. So, so a lot of things I'd say. Um, and I'm also inspired, of course, by the way he. Um, it felt like to me, at least, that he sort of. Um, created a family of musicians around him that knew his music and and uh, yeah that he used sort of in different constellations and and I'm as a band leader and a composer I'm I'm yeah very very inspired by that as well uh, so 
as you can hear a lot of things he's 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 like a yeah he's my main <laughs> main person in music somehow that's beautiful man. yeah that's beautiful what what really stands out about him in addition to his leadership is his ability to be in a band and mm -hmm. he was very you know particular about the opportunities he chose to mm. be a sideman after a certain point yeah but for a leader to embrace you Jacob mm. and then when you call on him to be on your record and mm. he says yes I mean how does that make you feel you know <laughs> nervous <laughs> <laughs> I remember I wrote Paul because I was like so I mean maybe in five six years would you consider playing on one of my albums uh, I sincerely did not feel like I was ready and um, and this was like three weeks or something before I was playing with this band at the Vanguard and and that, that when I wrote the email it was early morning I knew Paul was uh, he was always walking around the park so he was coming back <laughs> two minutes later he you know he replied me so he'd been out in the park and he came by saw my email and he's like okay yeah why, why don't we do it in two weeks when you get here wow. instead of in five years and I couldn't turn that offer down because you know I just had to go with it so yeah. ready or not I, I just gotta so I started writing music preparing for that session uh, and I don't know it yeah it's all like a for me it was all like a learning process if you can share with us there's a hip thing happening in a couple of days in the studio oh yeah and you know Paul would have turned 90 mm. uh, coming up here very soon um, what 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 have you got in the hopper that, yeah. that you could talk about? Well, I mean, um, yeah, I've been uh, back and forth with Joe Lovano about doing a, a tribute to Paul record-wise with for, for ECM. I'm meeting with Larry Grenadier, Jorge Rossi, Joey Barron, um, Thomas Morgan, and the Danish bass player Anders Christensen and Joe Lovano in Copenhagen with Manfred Eicher. And we're going to play like a third of the pieces will be Joe's third of the pieces will be my pieces and the third will be Paul's and um, yeah I just, I just literally can't wait to, to just be uh, you know two days in the studio with all these beautiful musicians and just like celebrating Paul basically yeah. I mean this last month I've been home with the piano I've been listening to Paul's music I've been it's been such a meaningful sort of uh, preparational phase for me to go, go back and re-explore all his music and then with the purpose of actually recording some music uh, in his memory somehow, it's, I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely. All for Paul. Yeah, Indeed. exactly. <laughs> for man. the love of Paul. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> Greg, that is some beautiful news about the forthcoming Paul Motion tribute. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, there's there's kind of a um, a cottage industry of motion tributes, uh, yeah. And and you know, each one has been so beautiful. You know, um, it, maybe we'll try to put together a um, a, a playlist uh, of some highlights because so many people have have been playing Paul's music, keeping it alive. You know, the way that we experienced it up at the Falcon, mm -hmm. you know, just the thriving aliveness of, of this music. Um, and I want to note that in addition to Motion in Motion, um, which we obviously love, um, Paul's niece, Cindy McGuirl, 
I hope I'm saying her her name right. It's spelled M C G U I R L. Um, she has put together um, in two volumes uh, Paul Motion's songbook, um, <clears throat> and it's really uh, it's really beautiful. Um, most of the charts are in his own hand. Mm. Um, I'm I'm very uh, I'm very proud to be an, an owner of these songbooks. Uh, I haven't haven't broken them out and played them with people, but you know, I've, maybe someday, Greg, yeah, get together and uh, take a crack at Conception Vessel. Sure. Um, but Cindy has also been um, putting together a thing called Uncle Paul's Jazz Closet Radio Show. Um, <laughs> nice. Which you can check out. It's it's you know all about his music, but all about um, his life, you know? And so uh, there's a lot of bearing witness um, to this incredible musician um, who really, you know, he gave us a lot and he continues to. Well, as we've uh, been accustomed to doing here on the podcast, a little segment that we uh, do called This I Dig. And uh, this week... um, I'm going to take the microphone and go first. (laughs) Go for it. So what I've been digging on is uh, this great thing that Wayne Shorter and Esperanza Spaulding brought into the world, Mm -hmm. Iphigenia. Uh, Just an incredible opera. We've had two operas now by two of our most prominent composers in this music. It's getting Um, to be a habit with us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. But uh, thanks again, Nate, for... uh, the invitation, um, just uh, to make it plain, folks, we went to the premiere in Boston and just had a grand old time. Um, and it was so interesting just to hear Maestro Shorter's language communicated by an ensemble of that size. Um, and again, for me, the takeaway was compositions are organisms, man. Um, mm. I've been listening over and over um, since seeing the play to Predator, a tune found on the uh, 1984 Weather Report album called Domino Theory, uh, one of, I believe, three Wayne Shorter compositions on that album. But in the case of this tune, the motif of it recurs again and again, and turned inside, outside, throughout the different acts. And it was just an interest point for me in particular, you know, loving on that album uh, like I do, but just in showing again just how you know, compositions never die. They're breathing, they're living, and in the hands of someone like Shorter, um, new material is mined from them again and again. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's fitting that you would say that in a conversation about Paul Motion, too, mm. um, because I feel like that's, you know, it, it applies across the board. So you, you, you know, you stole my obvious idea uh, to talk about ah. Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> Pile so on, I'm, man. There's room. No, you know, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, second your uh, endorsement, and then, and then go somewhere a little different. Um, as I was uh, traveling up to Boston for this experience, I was reading a book that was recommended to me by my friend Ann Powers, um, and this book was published this year on Duke University Press. Um, it's by a scholar named Jaina Brown. And it's the title is Black Utopias, Speculative Life, and the Music of Other Worlds. Um, and it's a, it's an academic book, but it's really uh, thought provoking. 
Um, <clears throat> it touches on some figures that, that we revere, including Alice Coltrane and Sun Ra and Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney. Um, really interesting stuff. Um, and it felt like uh, some useful uh, preparatory mojo for the Wayne and Esperanza uh, operatic experience. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I just want to, uh, you know, shout out Black Utopias by Jaina Brown. Folks, this has been Jazz United, a product of WBGO Studios. I'm Greg Bryant. He's Nate Chenin. Of course, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen at WBGO.org. Our producer is Trevor Smith. Our theme song is United, written by Newark's own Wayne Shorter and performed by Newark's own Woody Shaw. Of course, uh, you can contribute to WBGO. We are member-supported. Programs like this happen because of your support. Go straight to WBGO.org slash support to make your contribution today. I should also mention that uh, WBGO.org is where you will very shortly find our 2021 holiday gift guide full of goodies. And it's where we uh, do a lot of other stuff. Uh, You'll see Greg's byline. Of course, you'll see mine um, and other members of the WBGO family. So stop by sometime. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.